1: Hello and welcome to the CapEx podcast. I'm John Ashmore, the editor of CapEx. From the lowest prison cell to the grandest palace, human beings are engaged in an age-old battle for status and recognition. In his latest book, The Status Game, science writer Will Storr brilliantly unpacks just how human societies are steeped in the search for status. How it leads to conformity, hysteria and violence, but also to enormous life-enhancing achievements – I always enjoy recording our podcasts, but I must say this interview was a particular pleasure, with a writer and thinker who conveys great knowledge and enthusiasm about his subject. I hope you all enjoy listening to it just as much as I did recording it. So, Will, welcome to the CapEx podcast. Uh, great to have you here. Um, you're the, the status game. I mean, how would you define what the status game is? It's kind of a, a, a synonym for, for human, all human life, really, isn't it?
0: Yeah, well, it's kind of a synonym for tribal life. So so the status game is kind of just another way of saying we're tribal. You know, we are groupish um, and, you know, we're used to thinking ourselves as groupish in the sense that we connect into groups. But what the status game focuses us on is the kind of second half of that, which is once we've connected into groups, we tend to want to rise in those groups, too. So it's a kind of a focus on the, the rising instinct, you know.
1: Yeah. And what was your this is your sixth? book I think yes I mean what was the kind of genesis of this was there a particular thing that thought right I want to buy I write a book about this particular topic or is it something that's been in your journalism over a a bit of time so you've kind of collated stuff
0: yeah I mean there's definitely a like a building of ideas throughout my books and and my second book was called The Heretics and it was about why it was an investigation into why Smart people believe crazy things. So, so it's not, you know, so it's about people like David Irving, who's a really smart guy. Right. Ended up being, a, you know, a kind of a, a revisionist um, Second World War historian. And I went on a kind of an inverted holiday with him as part of my research. Um, oh, wow. he, he does yeah. tours. I don't know if he still does them. He did tours around Eastern Europe. Um, to kind of various World War II and Holocaust sites. And uh, he attracts, certainly attracts Holocaust deniers. I can certainly say that for sure. Um, so, so it's people like him. Because David Irving, I mean, you know, say what you like about him. He's a smart fella. He ain't stupid. Uh, and so why, why do people, you know, um, why do otherwise smart people end up believing these kind of things? And so the answer that I came to in that book was that, the, you know, the brain isn't this machine for assessing facts and the truth. The brain is this kind of storyteller and, you know, in, in the book, I call it a hero maker. He likes to make us feel heroic. Uh, and, and any any um, facts it comes across which flatters that heroic narrative, it tends to uncritically accept. And any, any facts it comes across which kind of poke holes in that heroic narrative is very good at deflecting. That, that kind of contains the DNA of this book. It's very much about the brain wanting to make us feel good about ourselves and feel kind of statusful, although I
1: never used the word status in that book. And, yeah, so that, that's where it kind of originally comes from. I was thinking that when there's a chapter in the book about the satanic panic, mm. which is very much the kind of thing you're talking about, very eminent people who believe things that now when you read it back just sound utterly deranged. <laughs> um, I mean, was that was that something that you'd s- sort of been work- worked on before as well? Or Yeah, so in The Heretics there was a
0: chapter on um, recovery memory therapy and that very dubious and now now thoroughly debunked idea that um, that, that through through therapeutic processes you can you can recover previously lost memories of abuse, and so there was a chapter on some family that was torn really torn apart by these fake accusations. So uh, that, that that was a British family, but um, Titanic panic was definitely connected to all that, um, and and yeah, I mean you know it's this kind of spasm of madness in the US that we. You kind of look at it as sconces. Could it possibly have happened, where, where where people believed that there were these secret satanic networks of um, Satan, you know, obviously Satanists and child abusers, you know, they were, they were especially active in 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 play schools, kindergartens, and, um, and and they would, you know, do things like you, you drop your kid off at the at play school, the kid would be flown to Mexico to a military base to be right. ritually sexually abused, then flown back, and 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 you know there's stories like this, you know, kids being thrown into sharks and buried in tombs and you know crazy yeah, stuff stuff, yeah. stuff that just you just think that obviously didn't happen but yeah I mean people you know not only did uh, parents end up believing it but law, but law enforcement officials ended up believing it um, judges ended up believing it dozens of people were put in prison for stuff that is just preposterous and re- you know what I did what to do in the status game was just look at this from the perspective of we, we think of that as a moral panic but but is it a moral panic or is it what I call a um, uh, kind of a status gold rush? You know, status is this fundamental human need we have. And, and what the people who are at the source of that satanic panic, what, undoubtedly what they all um, uh, gained from it was immeasurable amounts of status in money, in celebrity, in stature,
1: professional stature. So, so, so yes, yeah, so that, that's the argument that I make in the book. And what's interesting, one of the things that's interesting to me is that what you're talking about, it's it's not really culturally contingent. It emerges in pretty much any human society. I mean, you talk in one chapter about uh, some Pacific Islanders who compare the size of yams that they grow. <laughs> yeah. The simplest way that I, that, that I, that I, I can put it is
0: that you know how it kind of essentially works is that humans are born with these half-finished brains. You know, famously, we we you know we that's what childhood is. It's completing the construction of our brains, and and when we're born, the brain wants to know something quite simple, and that's who have I got to be in order to get along and get ahead, connect and gain status. What what have I got to believe? How have I got to dress? How have I got to speak? What are the rules of behavior? What are the norms? And you know, and to 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 a great extent, we become those people. I mean, and that's what brains want to know. That's what they want. They want connection and they want status, and that's not culturally contingent, that's human nature. So wherever you go in the world, you know, you you, you see this stuff, I mean, and the account that you're referring to is in this small Micronesian island, I think it's called Pompeii, you pronounce it, where they've got a status game around yams, and, 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 and you gain huge status if you bring the biggest yam to a chiefly feast. You're literally declared number one, that's what they call you, they call you number one. And so what happens when human brains you know are introduced to this game where this status is an offer they become obsessed with yam growing and and you know like they're obsessed with yam growing out there they you know they 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 sneak out of bed at two in the morning to their secret yam plots in the in the forest to you know sprinkle fertilizer on them and um the yams grow so huge that it takes i think 12 men to carry one yam into a feast with stretchers, especially made stretcher on poles So, so 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 that's you know, really a testament to human obsession with status, but also the amazing things that humans are capable of when the reward of status is
1: an offer. And you identify, I think I'm right in saying, three basic modes of types of status you can uh, attain, and it's virtue, competence, and dominance. So basically being morally good, being good at stuff, and being powerful. In terms of how we define a culture, there's a lot of that in the balance between which of those things gives people status? So if you look at, say, the difference in Roman culture and Christian culture, one has much higher, puts a much higher value on a certain kind of virtue than the other. I mean, I just wonder what, sort of in, what the implications for that are.
0: Yeah, so that's the, the. These are the three ways that humans play for status. Dominance is the oldest, you know, it's the animalistic aggression, the threat of aggression. Virtue is obviously, you know, how good we are at following the rules and enforcing the rules, and you know things like being courageous in battle, and then competence, which is you know, I call success games. You know, you know. So, so when we were hunter gatherers, and our you know human brains were becoming human brains and evolving that way, we were awarded status for. Um, you know, following the rules of the tribe, being courageous in battle, but also being successful, being a great honey finder, storyteller, you know, whatever it is. Um, so, uh, and so, you know, 10,000 years ago, dominance, virtue and success were the three ways we played for status. They, they still are today around the world. And you're absolutely right. You can, you, can, you can move around in time and history and see different forms of, you know, status coming to the fore. You know, you've got dominance cultures, which is very aggressive, you mm. know, you, 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 you know um, uh, cultures. Um, In the book, I talk about how, um, you know, I tell the story of modernity, uh, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the Enlightenment, about this shift from virtue games, religion, caste, you know, class, all that stuff that we were stuck in for, you know, a long, long time into games of success, games of competence. And that's what really what the Enlightenment Industrial Revolution was. It was a way of we started rewarding not for who you were and your identity of birth, but what you could do. And so it was the beginning of social mobility, you know, I mean, this was the sexist time still, so men of working yeah. class origin could still rise and become very statusful if they invented something or become a talented architect. And so, and, and, you know, and, and, and yeah, so, and, and I think what we've seen since perhaps 2008, roughly, you, you know, from the beginning of the eighties, I think we, we saw this shift into a kind of an unprecedented focus on success gains the 80s world is all about success, you know, and, and I think that carried on right up until the financial crisis and we're now seeing this slight reversion into more virtue
1: virtue forms of gaining status. And I think, is it fair to say, I think people's idea of what success is has has changed quite, quite a lot in that time now, I think. It's also, it's interesting to me, do you think that the UK, we've always been known for being obsessed with class... <laughs> Are we a particularly status-obsessed society or is it just that we put a certain label on it by saying, oh, we're working class, middle class, upper class and so on?
0: Yeah, I think one of the mistakes people make when they think about status is they say, oh, you know, like men are more obsessed with status than women and Americans are more status-obsessed than the Norwegians or something. And that's not, not correct. It's just that we all play different status games. I mean, you know, one of the sort of basic ideas of the book is that it's not just one game, it's multiple games. It's almost infinite games. I mean, you know, growing but having an allotment is a kind of status game. He's got the biggest cabbage, you know, like like, like you can attach anything to kind of status. Oh yeah, Yeah. exactly. Yeah, exactly. So no, you know, I, I think that different people play for status in different ways. I know people who are very proud of the fact that despite being relatively well off, they drive, you know, banger cars and you know, with a masking tape around the wing mirror and, and and it's like, Oh well I'm not like these people who drive their brand new Lexuses and their Mercedes. Right. And it's like, no, that's just your way of claiming status. You're looking down your nose at the Mercedes people. You know, that's your status game. That's your symbol for claiming status, your criteria for claiming status. So it's yeah, yeah.
1: It's interesting. It reminds me of when politicians like Tony Blair used to adopt a sort of slightly estuary accent when he was talking about football. <laughs> the same kind of thing, because it's still, its not seen as cool to be posh anymore. Exactly. So these yeah, kind of things yeah. are flipped. It's, it's,
0: it's completely contextual. Absolutely. So if you take a you know, Eaton and a, like an Eton boy and drop them in the comprehensive school that I went to, they'd probably feel really uncomfortable because different. You know, it's, yeah, different markers for status. In the same way that if I went to Eton, I'd feel really uncomfortable. I mean, then that's that's that sense of alienation, almost culture shock that you get when you're not around people who use the
1: same criteria for claiming status. And this is kind of one of the things that I guess is discombobulating if you move to a different country as well, is you're not quite sure how to play the game for a while as, as well. Yeah, I spent four years in Australia
0: and that, 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 that's definitely true, yeah. Even
1: it's... there where you think, oh, well, they're so culturally close to us. <laughs> and like, I mean, what? what tell me about that. What, was, what, do you, what were the differences there compared to the UK?
0: You know, I think Australia... I I guess from 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 my perspective, um, you had to be really careful that that I think there's a lot of uh, how do you put it in a delicate way. P- people are very sensitive to English people and British people in Australia because of our you know our history. The whining pom the, the, the whing palm yeah, yeah. the yeah. whinging pom yeah and, and so you know when I first met there I had a meeting with somebody from a publishing company and, and he said you got to be really careful because. Sometimes Australians are very patronised by... And I've been in situations where I've been accused of being patronising. I've got no idea what I'm doing. And I don't feel like I am, so you've got to be so careful. And um, one of my favourite things that happened when I was in Australia was when I um, first went into a post office to send some stuff in the post. And I said to the guy behind the counter, can I have some first-class stamps, please? And he very proudly looked at me and said, we don't have the class system in this country, sir. I <laughs> thought was so clever. <laughs> but yeah, you know, so it's, a different, it's different. You know, you, you would think, fuck, you know, like... Yeah, there's a sense where you're kind of often treading on eggshells, um, and you know and you're not quite sure if I said the wrong thing. And
1: yeah, you're, yeah, you mentioned this before how we play kind of different games, and I'm I'm interested in something you call the the Prince Charles paradox. <laughs> and there's another, well, there's two stories in this from complete, in the book that are completely different contexts, but kind of illustrate the same thing. One of them is about a guy called Ben Gunn, who mm. was in prison. And, and the other is a, a sort of line or two about Prince Charles, which is that you can have formally high status, but also low status in the eyes of other people at the same time. Or, yeah. in, or in Ben Gunn's case, he's in prison, but within that system, he has high status and feels good.
0: Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's, that, that's a good observation. They're kind of opposites of each other. So what I call the Prince Charles paradox, which you might equally call the Prince Harry paradox, is um, so, so if you look at the history of humanity you know, before we were kind of in settled communities, we were playing status games in the tribe. And, and you know, human groups famously are relatively egalitarian. That doesn't mean they're communist. It means that... It, yeah, we'll, it means, we'll come on to the communists. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it means that everyone's fighting over their status, yeah. you know, and there are lots of checks and balances to make sure that that status game remains small and no one lords it over anybody else. That's, that, that's our history. And then we settled down. And so, you know, back in the days of the tribe, and, and again, to, just to contextualise that, that's it's about a hundred thousand generations who are living in the tribal context, and five hundred who've been living in a settled context. That's an unimaginably vast period of time. Um, so really important. And then once we settle down, and we actually get, uh, you know, kings, princes, dukes, uh, uh, you know, priests, we get this kind of formalized hierarchy of status game. So, so, so you know, the natural status game is, is the one that's played in the minds of the of the group. P- people's status rises and falls depending on their behaviour, and it's very fluid and. Uh, you know, but 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 once it's formalized, you've got a king or a queen or an emperor. So you've got these now formal kind of hierarchies that are kind of, you know, job titled in a sense. And so, so you've got these two ways of playing the status game. You've got the formal status game, and the and, then, and the one that actually exists in the minds of the people. And of course, Prince Charles, Prince Harry, former well, actually not not Prince Harry anymore. Prince Charles, formerly, very high status. You know, second, he's next in line to the throne. Um, but actually, his public approval ratings are relatively low. So, 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 so and, and I think you know, when you, in history, when you get these dynamics, when you get people who are formally high in status but actually not as high in reality in the minds of the people, you get a lot of very dangerous, kind of Stalin-esque, you know, paranoid uh, behaviours. Because, you know, the, the leader's the leader, but they can sense they're not really the leader. Right. Yeah. <laughs>
1: and, with, uh, and Ben Gunn is right at the beginning of, of the book, and he was a guy who, I, I think he murdered someone when he was a teenager, and became very institutionalised in prison, but very good at playing the prison game. And then, I think I'm right in so saying he didn't really want to leave. Didn't want to leave.
0: No, I mean, that, that's the extraordinary guy, um, Ben Gunn, who, yeah, when he was, I think, 14, uh, had a very troubled childhood, was in a care home, killed a uh, ki- killed a boy, um, was sent down, uh, prison sentence at Her Majesty's Pleasure, was sent down in, in still in his school uniform. So, you know, terrible. I mean, you, can you imagine a, you know, a moment of, of kind of more absolute despair? And he did enter despair. He tried to kill himself, uh, tried to starve himself. Uh, but then he started, um, you know, doing what healthy human brains do, and he started playing a, some, a status game. He started educating himself, and so so outraged was he by the, you know, petty um, and vindictive behaviour of the prison officers, um, he started educating himself on the law, and he became, you know, that archetypal figure, the prison lawyer, an expert in the regulations and what they were and weren't allowed to do. So not only did he become a thorn in the side of the prison authorities, he became a kind of a hero to other prisoners who he'd help out get out of scrapes. And so, you know, he was also a lifer, and that also gets you a certain level of status in the prison system. So, yeah, he, he ended up becoming, uh, you know, a very high-status person in the prison system, um, quite notorious. Um, he, he, I think at one point he was the longest-serving prisoner in the prison system. In the um, whole country? Yeah, wow. and, and, okay. uh, to, to the extent where there, was, there, were, there were campaigns for his release, because he... It, he his, he, was, he would keep being turned down for parole yeah. and because he was such a troublemaker and, and Michael Gove, I think, was involved in the campaign for his release, perhaps the Rising thing So, uh, and then what happens is he, is he falls in love. He falls in love with a visiting, I think she was an English teacher, Alex, um, and um, she's just like, look, you just got to behave until your next parole meeting <laughs> and, we, and I've got a cottage in the Cotswolds and a cat, we're going to have this amazing life. And he, he didn't want to do it. You know, he didn't want to do it. And, and um, you know, in his own words, I could see I was a big, relatively big fish in this pond, but out there I was I was nobody. I mean, eventually he did um, leave, but only after he'd managed to author an Orwell Prize-winning online blog called Prisoner Ben. So yeah, yeah, he got a certain amount of status on the outside world and he left. And then he did, he had a kind of collapse, had a nervous breakdown right. when he left. So
1: and what? What's interesting from that is that the implication is your kind of material circumstances and your well being are not as closely linked as, as particularly Western culture would have you believe, and uh, you can be, you know, pretty pretty badly off and still think that you you know that your life's pretty decent. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, anybody that's sort of travelled
0: outside of Europe, even obviously bits in parts of Africa, can. You know, you're not, you're, not, you're not going around Africa saying these miserable, sad people because they haven't got the material wealth that we've got. It's, you know, it's crazy. It's, it's illogical that, that, that we think that, but we do. And that's because, you know, status is more important than wealth. And, and, and it's, what's really important is your, is, is your, how you compare to the people who you're sharing your lives with. So of course, massive inequality make, makes people unhappy a bit. And there's a certain segment of society who will always be, the, you know, furious and angry and, you know, envious and, and all that stuff. Um, uh, but but most people most of the time are comparing themselves to the people immediately around them. So so that, so you know, as I put in the book, if the whole world tomorrow started com- competing for status with Beyonce or, or Michelle Obama, we'd have a global nervous breakdown. <laughs> you know, it's not all we do. And and again, when when academics look at revolutions and when societies collapse. Um, after revolutions or, or you know radically restructured following revolutions, they find that it's not the poorest nations that tip into a revolutionary state. It's actually ones that are somewhat wealthy. Yeah. And um, what happens is um, it's not the, it's not the inequality that that, that that people object to. It's the perception of uh, 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 that the game isn't functioning as it should. I'm doing everything that I should. I'm supposed to do in order to get this bit of status, and I'm not getting it anymore. And that's what causes the problem. So so so. We're not so sensitive to massive inequality, we're sensitive to, the, to, 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 to perceived unfairness in the game, in the, in the sense that the rewards i expecting aren't being paid out.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, the start of the Arab Spring was that, wasn't it? It was a guy self immolating in Tunisia because he kept being fined exactly. trying to sell fruit and veg. Um, the bit you're saying about revolutions, I, mean, I think, leads quite neatly into there's a chapter in the book about communism. Most many of those. I mean, Lenin was an archetypal middle class person who'd had his family's status removed from him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I when I heard when I read that story, I just couldn't. I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it's just like extraordinary that, um, that that that. Yeah, absolute sort of middle class, kind of nouveau riche uh, family. You know, father was newly newly middle class, and and then his brother was. Um you, you know implicated in this sort of amateurish but almost successful assassination plot so so was executed and um the family was um basically cancelled you know <laughs> excommunicated from the community um you know all the standing was lost and then and then you, you know historians say this you know this was the beginning of his boiling rage against the bourgeoisie it comes from a space of 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 of, of, of kind of status anxiety you know yeah. in himself um, and you know, people close to him said that he wasn't motivated by social justice, he was motivated by hatred, you know. So, so, yeah. so, so yeah, and, you know, when I was researching the, the story of communism through the kind of lens of status, it's just it was revelatory to me. It really was. The, you know, the idea that actually what communism was was an attempt to build a society. Ready to pop the question? without status, you know, a kingdom of equality in the parlance of the time. Um, and it just didn't work. And, and, and my, the, I mean, lots of your listeners will know this probably, but, but, you know, Stalin had this enormous, crazy reversal of the communist dream, which I didn't know. You know, he brought back all these status-based you know, accolades. He brought back, you know, like, you know, communism, the, the nub of communism was, was to be able to abolish possession, material possession. To, you know, that, 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 that was another point. Private ownership. Get rid of it. And Stalin said, there's nothing wrong with somebody wanting to own a cow. It's human nature. Yeah. And, you know, he used um, the phrase equality monger" as an insult. He accused people of being equality monger. That was Stalin. So it just didn't work. And it didn't work by Stalin's time.
1: Yeah, and I can remember. I, I lived in Russia for a while, as regular podcast listeners will know. And you can see some of these um, old Soviet posters where there's a kind of guy in all white uniform with his big wad of cash. And it says something like, work harder, earn more. Wow. (laughs) It's like one of the most capitalist (laughs) things you have ever seen. I mean, it it was implicit in their their own rhetoric, actually, because they said, we're going to create a new Soviet man, which in a way is implying that they know the actual human beings are not made for this system.
0: Yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, that's sort of where I got to with this, is, is, is that the early, you know, is that Marx... Um, uh, you know and Engels argued that what created status anxiety and status problems was, was, was material possession and that you, you were happy with your little house until the big house was, brought ne- was built next to yours then you were unhappy with it so just get rid of all the, you know just make all the houses equal and actually it's not it's not material possession that creates status anxiety is our human nature it's built into us it's ineradicable you can't get rid of it and you know if if you want if you want you want proof that you can't get rid of it look at the story of the communists they tried everything and they and and, you know like a a 1950s sociological study that i write about found 12 distinct social classes in the soviet union so you know it
1: it just doesn't work yeah it's one of the great ironies probably the most stratified society <laughs> yeah. in human history, almost. Yeah. Um, do you think... Another big theme of the book, you kind of touched on it, I think, before, but it's this sort of... What you call a the status slot machine, which I think is a lovely way of describing it, which is social media. And, I mean, is... is do you think that, that cancel culture is essentially a, a, a modern tech-driven... Uh, sort of exhibition of all the ideas that you talk about in your book.
0: Yeah, so, 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 so yeah, that's right. So in the book, I, you know, I describe social media as a slot machine for status. I mean, and, and, and I've sort of found these, you know, in retrospect, they're really hilariously naive prophecies by these tech utopians from Wired magazine in the 90s who could see social media coming. And they literally prophesied that, you know, once we've connected the people together, all the old hierarchies will vanish. And it's going to be, again, this kingdom of equality. Where anybody can say whatever they want, and there'll be no, you know, it'll be freedom of expression and freedom of debate. And of course, it's the opposite. And, and it's the opposite because that's what happens when you connect billions of people, millions of people together. They just start playing status games dominance, virtue, and success. And I think you know you you see that in um you, you know you have got to turn, up, turn turn on any social media platform you're going to see the dominance the cancel culture the shouting the screaming the virtue the display of my beliefs are better than yours um you know here's my just giving page and the success look at my holiday look at my flat look at my award you know it, it's all there uh, you know that's human nature and and so so yeah I, you know I, I think that um yeah, you know, cancel culture and inverted commas is, is is kind of a predictable. All of that is a predictable effect of connecting millions of people together and getting them to compete for status because that's what social media platforms do. They get you to, you know, they they they, they can, you know, how many followers have I got? How many likes did I get? How many retweets did I get? These are all markers of status, and they're you know they're, they're addicting because of that.
1: One thing that um, people often accuse the people who design Twitter, and Facebook, and Instagram and things like that of deliberately engineering it in a way but I th- it sounds to me like the implication of what you're saying is however you put together a social network that attracted millions of people you would still end up with the same
0: behaviors yeah that's i think that's really overstated i mean you know we, we, we're storytelling animals we love a villain we love a darth vader and you know about mark zuckerberg jack dorsey they're classic you know villains but but, but it's not really true i mean, it's, it's, I mean in, you know the, the kind of predecessor to this book selfie which is very much about internet culture and western individualism how they kind of intersect i write about the invention of the selfie camera and about how you know when 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 apple launched their first phone with it in sony i think launched the first selfie camera it wasn't called the selfie camera It was called the front facing camera and what they imagined you were going to do was have business meetings together and talk to your nan they didn't dream for a second that we were going to like turn it on ourselves and upload billions of selfies every day yeah. you know but, been, but when we started doing that of course they they changed the technology they they created selfie you know like you know they they they, they created better and better selfie taking cameras and that's how silicon valley works you know they, like silicon valley the tech industry pump out you know thousands of ideas a year it's us the people that decide a which ones work and b how they work what we're going to do with them and I think what you really see with Zuckerberg and Dorsey and all the technologists is they're frantically trying to work out what do people want and how can I give it to them. Yeah. You know, Twitter wasn't designed to be this kind of the the, the kind of you know the, the monster that it is today. They, they, they've, just, they've 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 just, just by instinct and revision and iteration figured out what people want and what people are like and given it to them.
1: Do you think the best way to deal with that as you as an individual? Is to switch off. I, I think I'm right in saying that you don't use Twitter much yourself, or you... not anymore. No,
0: I mean I, I I use it. I've got the world's most boring Twitter feed. It's just it's just um, is more self promotion. You know, I just don't I just don't use it as a social thing anymore because it's it's too dangerous and it's uh, and it's and it is. You know, in in the book I call it the slot machine for status because you know the the kind of psychology behind so, the social media platforms is that it, it as lots of people know it gives. It gives um, um, inconsistent rewards, like a slot machine. Yeah, and that's why it's kind of so you come on. You might have a load of lights. Yeah. Like, ooh, yeah. and it works, you know, and it yeah. works. So I, I, you know, I, I try, I, I, I try and sort of keep off it. And if I wasn't an author, if I didn't need it for my work, I, I
1: would be off it completely. Yeah, and it intersects with another theme, which is the rise of a kind of what you might call a social justice warrior. There's a, a horrifying example in the book of a woman called. Karen, I don't know if she is the original Karen who spawned the phrase Karen, but she talks about um, innocently talks about wanting to go to India and says how it seemed like it was a faraway like Mars or something, yeah. another, another planet. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. then she just gets absolutely flayed by all Perthety these people. Perfectly banal, harmless with, statement. Yeah, yeah, and with the kind of regurgitating all the kind of CRT-ish, you know, language and and stuff like that. And what do you think? Is it just status that is attractive about being one of the foot soldiers of that movement because our last guest on the on the podcast was a guy called john mcwater who's written about this a lot and he didn't use the word status in his book but he used words like purpose and meaning are are these just kind of variations on a theme
0: yeah i i i i I would argue so i mean you know status is like when i was writing the book i was just amazed that that this book hadn't been written before because you know, we know now. Uh, I say we, hubristically, it's not we. It's the science, scientists. You know, the researchers, the academics have, uh, have um, you, you know, convincingly. I think you know argued that status is a fundamental human need. Um, and so, when you see, you know, so so so, so you know, I'm writing a book on that, and then, then then you begin to see ideas like meaning and purpose through that lens. And I, and I think it's true that it's those two things: connection and status. Connecting into a group and earning status within it. When we do that, that's when we feel like our lives have meaning. That's when we feel like our lives have purpose. You know, what, what does it mean to be to live meaningful, purposeful lives? It means joining a you know a mission and succeeding in it, being seen as somebody that has value to that particular mission. Whether you are you know growing yams in Micronesia or you are trying to you know rid the worlds of racism or homophobia or transphobia or whatever it is. So, so, so yeah, you know, I think that you know, status is is, is some, you know academics call it make a different shape to your proximate and ultimate motivations and proximate motivations are the ones that where you know why are you doing what you're doing oh because i want to you know i want to be a you know uh, i want to you know uh, win an award or i want to um help this person status is his ultimate motivation it's this deep upstream thing you know
1: subconscious reason that we do lots of the things that we do I think it's also a good frame of reference to look at politics as well, because so many political campaigns... We're seeing it writ large now in Eastern Europe. We have a a leader who bemoans the reduced status of his former empire and tells his people that they're victims while they attack someone else, um, which I find kind of fascinating. Another political campaign that I thought of reading this book was um, the Brexit referendum. Because a lot of the people who opposed it would trot out kind of economic benefits. But really, for a lot of... It, do you think it's fair to say that for a lot of voters, it was really about saying, you're being listened to, you're being given esteem, rather than, we're going to give you a cash transfer?
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, 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 of course, you know, it, 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 it would be naive to simplify it down to kind of one thing. But, but, but mm. you know, that, and again, I wrote about this more in more depth in Selfie, I I think it's true that um, Brexit and Trump, you know, a a part of why these things happened is that that, that there's a huge kind of swathe of the population of the US and Britain that feels reduced, marginalised and de-emphasised in status and has done since probably the 60s, the civil rights revolution, when the left stopped thinking about class and wealth and poverty and started concentrating more on discrimination you know, homophobia, sexism, racism, all that stuff. I used to work for a magazine called Arena, a men's magazine, and the first commission I ever gave was uh, like a like a, just a report on. This is in two thousand and seven. Should we be in the European Union or not? And I spent a week interviewing experts. And I've got to be honest, by the end of the week, I still, I was so confused. It was like, it's a really complicated question. And so when they announced the referendum, I was like, how, how are we going to figure this out? I couldn't figure this out as a journalist. It's so complicated. Um, so, so it's not really, you know, you can't, you know, you can't expect people to, it's so complicated. Should we be part of the free market? I mean, who knows? You, there were lots of unconscious and conscious kind of motivations driving that referendum that, that weren't really about economic benefits and you yeah. know, the stuff. that
1: we, we all like to think that our conscious part of our brain sure. is doing our thinking for us, but actually it's really... If you read other writers... I'm reading a book at the moment by Amy Alcon, which is saying that only some tiny percentage of your decision-making is actually what you're thinking about and so much more of it is these kind of processes
0: oh yeah yeah the vast majority of it is unconscious
1: yeah I mean I think David Eagleman the neuroscientist
0: says that the conscious experience is he thinks it is it is just but whispers of the actual subconscious stuff that's going on and we have no direct access to the real causes of our motivations so if you are if you are if if, I mean you know I'm very much a remainer if you are to ask me why I'm a remainer I'll give you loads of reasons but I don't know if they're the real reasons all I know is that this is what I believe, and, and I'm, you know, they call it confabulating, I'm making up all these stories. Yeah, it's mostly know. instinctive. Yeah, yeah You exactly. don't really, yeah. and then you post-hoc. It's post-hoc, post-hoc yeah, it's it. post-hoc fabrication. Yeah, you, you, you go to media and experts to give you evidence that the stuff you already believed was, was true. You know, yeah. like 99% of people, I, 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 I immediately knew that I was a Remainer, mm. and I haven't changed my mind. Sure, okay. <laughs> you, know, you know, or you know yeah. So or, the or the other way around. That's yeah. what I mean, yeah. Not not the 99%, it remains, but 99% of people immediately knew what yeah. side of the yeah. argument yeah. they were on and they haven't changed their mind.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean when you were doing the research for this, what what did you personally find most revelatory or kind of confounding? So the the, 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 the major light bulb
0: moment for me was when I started looking at the rise of the Nazis through the through the lens of all this. And there was a connection that i just wasn't expecting to make so earlier in my research very early in my research you know i before i even sort of pitched the book i thought well if you're going to argue that status is so important you're going to have to you know you know let let let's look at what happens if somebody has status taken away from them because if it's really if it's a human need hmm. it must be catastrophic and then i found the literature on humiliation on, on, on you know and humiliation technically is 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 the you know, the, 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 is, the, is the removal of status from, from a group you know, that's so bad that you have the inability to claim it in the future. you basically, you know, you're, you're so reduced in status that you're basically kicked out of the group. You know, that, that's essentially what it means. And it is a disaster. Like, humiliation connects um, honour killings with genocides, with serial killers, with, yeah. you know, you just the list goes. The very worst of human behaviours... Terrorism all has humiliation implicated in it. So I thought, well, okay, so that I'm convinced now. And 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 in the chapter, you know, the example that I looked at, and when I was doing my research in detail, was this guy Elliot Rogers, who's this classic in spree killer. Um, and so he was a, a teenager. We think he was autistic uh, on the aut- autism spectrum. Um, became a, was very narcissistic um, uh, in personality, um, and became fixated with the fact that pretty girls didn't want to go out with him. And he has his origin story. That he, when he uh, before he did his spree killing, he, he published a hundred eight thousand word memoir, autobiography called My Twisted World, um, which is just an extraordinary document. Um, and you know he he, he's, he describes in detail his life up to the age of seventeen, uh, you know, which is when he died. Um, and uh, he's the the, uh, the kind of apex of his madness. The, the the story that he's telling of the world is 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 basically that. Um, women are the biggest problem in the world and they're the biggest problem because they keep choosing these aggressive stupid jock types to procreate with and having aggressive stupid jock babies so what we need to do is kill the women except for a small amount of them which we're going to put in a like a factory to procreate with artificial insemination sex is going to be like abolished and I'm going to be the king of the world so when you read that you think this is this is about as misogynistic as it's possible to get, and actually, this is insane. Like, this person shouldn't be walking the streets. This is, this is like, how could you even think of, think this? You know, let alone believe it. And then, you know, a, a year, eighteen months later, of course, I start. I'm researching the, the rise of the Nazis, and I suddenly realised that is the, almost the exact story that an entire nation began telling about the Jews. So it's like Jesus. So, so, so you know, so. That was a sort of big connection for me, that, that, that really, you know, that, that when we're deprived of status, you know, um, the, the brain really does tell these incredibly dangerous stories that we that we believe, you know, up to and including wiping out, uh, you know, a, a particular race or a particular gender.
1: That, the thing about the Nazis, I think the Nazis chapter is, is absolutely brilliant and very, I mean, I thought I knew a reasonable amount about the rise of Hitler and the Second World War and stuff. But even then, I, was, I actually realised that I still basically think of them as having succeeded through fear and power and intimidation. But what you show is that actually what they were doing is, much like social media, they were doling out status left, right and centre. Yeah, just like, just like the communists, you know,
0: to a degree. It's like, you know, membership of the Party was the only way you could, you could gain status. But more than that, it's a... The big thing that I was never taught about the Nazis at school and, and that maybe is still quite controversial in some circles is actually they were really successful. Like, they, you know, they, they, they were successful leaders of that country. Yeah. They, 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 were, they were transformative. And, and, you know, unlike someone like Donald Trump, you know, Hitler came up and said, I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to rescue the country. I'm going to um, you know, reverse the injustices in his words of the Versailles Treaty of Versailles. And he did it. He did it in a, few, in a matter of a few short years. And so... so you know, Hitler, uh, Germany at the time uh, was like Elliot Rogers. It was a it was a quite a grandiose culture. They were, you know, before the First World War, they were the most successful country in continental Europe, um, but, but by loads of different measures. Um, and they knew it. Um, World War One was, was 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 their great humiliation. And uh, they told a story that it was, you know, the jury that, that that did it to them. And, so, and then Hitler comes along and says, I'm going to restore the status of this nation. You know, like, oh, you always imagine Hitler as being continually, obsessionally ranting about the Jews. Right. So we have the Nuremberg yeah. rally image. Yeah. But, but actually, um, you know, in the 30s, they, they, they deliberately, you know, scaled that back because it didn't land well with the middle classes. It was mu- the rise of the Nazis was much more about we're going to restore the status of yeah that was what the Third Reich was. It's a thousand, you know, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna be kings of the world, you know, and and it's gonna, everything's gonna be fantastic, and um, uh, and and so you know, uh, and whenever there was a great success, like a, you know, like a like a rolling back of uh, of a, of, a, of a Versailles, universal in commerce, injustice, you know, that's when you'd get these great celebrations in the streets. That's when people would go sort of crazy for Hitler. Um, so 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 yeah, he you know he, as I say in the book all you know all successful groups are status generating machines and hitler was a status generating machine yeah. for that until the war obviously until they went well, until you know stalingrad like he was a status generating machine for that for, for that country and that's why they loved him unlike trump who said he was going to make america great again but then didn't yeah uh, you know hitler said i'm going to make germany great again and for a few years he was doing that you know so
1: yeah i think the parallels i don't i'm not comparing Putin with Hitler in terms mm. of the atrocities and things, but the parallels are quite striking between this a great nation or a nation that perceives itself as great being laid low, and then a, le- a charismatic leader telling them, you know, you can have it all again. Yeah, fundamentally, it's it's the same stuff. You know,
0: it's like I mean, you know, I think I think w- w- what the important thing to remember is that you know these great political geopolitical events like the Second World War, um, you know, the invasion of the, you know Ukraine. they they, they just seem so enormous and impossible to understand but they all begin and end in the minds of human beings and the minds of human beings are preoccupied with status and one of the ways that we gain status if if we're nationalistic is through the status of our we all gain status through through the status of our groups and if we get if we're the kind of people that gain status from our nation which lots of people are then it's a powerful thing that argument that putin has made and that hitler made and that trump has made is incredibly powerful. You know, you deserve better. You are, you, are, uh, you are a member of a fantastic, great nation that has been artificially laid low because of... Uh, you've had things yeah, taken yeah, away you had, from had, you. You're, you're, like, exactly, yeah. and we're going to get them back. Yeah. That is electrifying to, to humans in general. So.
1: Yeah. So I think, just to, just to finish off, and you finish the book with your rules for how to kind of navigate... Did, did writing the book make you feel more kind of pessimistic about what it is to be a human being, or was it just kind of explanatory?
0: No, it didn't. At the beginning, I felt like it was going to be that. And certainly there's lots of stuff in the book about narcissism and kind of stuff. <laughs> uh, but, 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 but I think the surprising thing for me, and the thing that I really like people to take away from it, is, is that actually we, we need to stop thinking about status as a negative thing. That yes... It's it's there in the very worst of human behaviours, but it's also there in the very best of human behaviours. You know, we, we we have this we have evolved this automatic instinct to reward ourselves and other people when we're altruistic and selfless. That's amazing. You know, like um, you know, the rewarding of um, success-based status has driven civilization. Has driven. Um, uh, you know, the you know, global rising living standards has driven the the medical revolution, the technological revolution. Status is absolutely implicated; it's deep in the veins of all of those movements. It's the very best of us, so I, I think we need to start you need to giving it a better kind of rep,
1: really. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for, Will. But thank you so much for being on the Capex Podcast. Will's book, The Status Game, and his other five books. Um, are available from all good bookshops uh, priced very reasonable twenty pounds um, and i I genuinely love this book i don 't really get people on the podcast unless I really liked the book in the first place so i would I would strongly recommend it it 's a, a really good read and uh, yeah thanks very much for coming on oh, thanks for having me John. And uh, thank you all for listening. Our next sit-down interview episode of the podcast will be with Merrin Somerset-Webb talking about her excellent new book, Share Power. So do tune in for that, download it, tell your friends. And please, if you like the podcast, leave us a review on Apple or wherever else you get your podcasts.